so this morning, uh, we're only going to have two points, two points this morning that we're going to be looking at as we finish out chapter 11, and verse 17 is where we're going to begin, and point number one, I have entitled this, inconsiderate, just that one single word, inconsiderate. It says in verse 17, Paul writing to the church in Corinth says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever in your life been considered an inconsiderate person. Uh, Maybe by a friend or a family member or a spouse Or maybe you can remember back to when you were a kid. I remember being told this. You know what? You're being very inconsiderate of other people's feelings right now. It just meant that you were thinking only about yourself and not about other people. You know, because other people have feelings too, just like you, just like me. This section that we're heading into this morning has to do a lot with the members of the church's interpersonal relationships. Now, it's been said, and I don't know if you've heard this, that church would be absolutely amazing if it weren't for the people. And people laugh about that and like, well, what would it be if it weren't for the people? Uh, you would say, well, absolutely, that's right. There wouldn't be a church if it weren't for the people, but people have problems and people sometimes don't do what they're supposed to be doing. And it happens even in the church. And we can laugh about that and maybe go as far as to say, uh, man, that is so true. This church would be so perfect if nobody attended it. And that's why they would go on to say, well, you know, if you ever find the perfect church, please don't attend it because you'll ruin it. And that's the way that it goes. So why is it, do you think, that people in church just don't get along? Uh, People, is it because they get offended or because they're offending others? Is it because people are doing things that they ought not to be doing and so that affects other people? Well, there's a lot of things that I think go into it. Is it because of people talking about other people uh, behind their backs? Now, I don't know if you've ever been gossiped about. Uh, It's not a nice feeling at all. I know personally what that feels like where you walk into a room. And I remember even in school back in the day in high school, if you were, you know, had people talking about you and you would walk through the locker hall, you know, so to speak, the hallway and all the lockers and people would look at you and you just felt that they knew something about you that you didn't know about you. And it was just a terrible feeling. And it's actually very hurtful. You know, but what do we do when we have people that are supernaturally empowered, which are Christians filled with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, that are acting naturally instead of supernaturally? I mean, it's in our sinful nature to act naturally. I hope we all understand that. It is very natural to sin. It's very natural to respond in a way that is not supernatural. You know, it's very natural for us to do and to say things we ought not to be doing or saying. But I'll tell you, if that doing and saying is directed at us, oh, watch out, because then the gloves come off at that point. We're going to get into it. And then we'll see these rifts and divisions in the church where it's really like family members not talking to family members and friends no longer being friends. And quite frankly, the enemy wins. The enemy wins. Because I think in any church body that is seeking the Lord and where the Word of God is being taught, that church body is an enemy to our enemy who is Satan. Where there are a group of men and women that have been brought together that collectively are accomplishing more than what they could by themselves. They're going to go further than they could by themselves. The enemy sees that as a threat. 
And this is something that's very, very sad to see. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He wrote and said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, or I beg you, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul writes and he begs them to live, to walk worthy of the high calling that God has placed on their lives to fulfill. To do what's appropriate for you because of your high calling by the Lord. He says in Ephesians to walk with lowliness or really that can mean in the Greek language to have a humble opinion of yourself and a deep sense of one's moral littleness. How about that? He also adds to lowliness, gentleness, being gentle with people in word and in deed. You're meek and you're mild. So the way that you treat people and the way that you communicate to people is gentle. He also says long-suffering. It means that you're patient with people. You endure their shortcomings. You endure with those mistakes and failures that they make. You're a steadfast friend. This is as opposed to a fair-weather friend. Like, hey, if everything's cool, we're cool. If something's wrong, then, you know, we're over. It's done. This long-suffering also means that we're slow in avenging wrongs. Now, when I was in high school, and I think this definitely carried into college and to young adulthood, nobody messed with me. And if they did, they'd pay. I don't know how I'd make them pay, but one day they would pay. And we had this, uh, this saying where, you know, we didn't get even, we got ahead. And I don't know how it's going to work, but one day I will be your boss and I will fire you. I don't know how that's going to happen, but that is something that I'm going for. And I can tell you right now that that is not a characteristic of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Just in case you were wondering, that's not good. It's wrong. Again, in Ephesians 4, Paul lists these characteristics of the follower of Jesus Christ walking worthy of his calling. And he connects verses 2 with 3 by saying, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When he says bearing with one another, it literally means to hold each other up, to sustain each other with love. That I'm going to help prop you up when you're falling. I'm going to be that steadfast friend. I'm going to bear with you. I'm going to bear with one another. See, the natural man responds to when something comes their way that somebody has done that's inappropriate or that's wrong. They would say, hey, watch me pull the love right out from underneath them. Just like that rug. Watch me chop off the love at their knees. And we can find ourselves not coming together as the body of Christ for the good, but for the worse. And that's what Paul's going to be addressing here. And hopefully, as the scripture is given, as, and we know from Corinthians that there were a lot of problems and those things were written to correct certain problems in the church, it can also be a great thing that's not just corrective, but preemptive. Where, especially, you know, in our church, where we can see this preempting problems that may arise in the future. And it says in verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. This is back now in 1 Corinthians 11. I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And as the body of Christ, we should be coming together because we are the body of Christ. A body doesn't work properly if it's disjointed. 
when it's out of joint, when it has its nose out of joint. Now, I don't know if you've ever had anything dislocated before, but it's painful. I remember back when I was 16, and rollerblading was cool. And I was very, very inept in rollerblading. My brothers happened to be very proficient, and they're going off ramps, and it was when, you know, the X Games were super, you know, uh, popular with that certain sport, and so all of us kids were getting rollerblades and lacing them up, and I hadn't had my rollerblades for about a week before I was trying to keep up with my brothers and hit uh, a grease slick that was on the, on the street that a car, I guess, like leaked oil or whatever, and my entire ankle popped out, and that was the most painful I had never actually felt such pain in my entire life. It was more painful than a woman giving birth. Okay, maybe not that bad. I just want to make sure you guys are paying attention this morning. But not only did it make my ankle kill, but my whole body hurt. My whole body hurt. You know, referred pain, and you see this, you know, in... in, uh, Uh, You know, a dentist might talk to you about referred pain if you have a toothache and you feel it in some other part of your body. But referred pain is the term given when you feel pain in other parts of your body from a different location that is painful. The same applies for the church. Even as you might have a, you know, a sore elbow, but, you know, my hand hurts too now. Or, you know, I had my ankle pop out and, like, my whole body ached or whatever it might be. It's the same for the church. See, it's not just you or the other party that's affected by whatever it is. It's the whole body. And if there's an area in the church where there's something that's taking place that's not right, it's not just affecting those parties, it's affecting the entire body. See, spiritually, when something wrong takes place, that effect is felt immediately. Publicly, it may take some time before it makes its way to the surface, but if things aren't taken care of before you know it, it's not better, it's worse. It's worse. And he says in verse 18, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Interesting. I don't know if you know the Greek word for church. It's ekklesia. Ekklesia. And it means the gathering or an assembly of Christians who have this, the hope of eternal salvation through Jesus Christ and are gathered together for worship in a religious meeting. So the church comes together and all of the people that are in the church that are professing faith in Jesus, they have this hope of salvation that when they die, they're going to heaven and we're saying, amen, thank you, Lord, that I'm able to be righteous in the sight of God because of what he's done for me. And I, through faith, receive that righteousness. I praise God for it. We come together as the body of Christ and we all have that hope and we're all looking forward to Jesus coming back. We praise the name of the Lord. But he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So you come together into this public place of worshiping the Lord, and you're divided. You're divided. There's a schism in the church. There's a tearing. And it's either because somebody tore into someone else, or someone feels like tearing into someone else. And there is division in the church, and when there's a division in the church, it must be recognized immediately and understood undeniably that it has Satan written all over it. All over it. Because he's come to rob, to kill, and to destroy, but Jesus said that he had come that we might have life and life more abundantly. 
We need to understand that as a church, that division in the church costs, it casts such a long shadow and it really dampens the work of the Holy Spirit. Dampens the work that the Holy Spirit desires to do in the lives of His people. So there I am, trying to worship the Lord, but all I can think about is the person sitting over there that I just can't stand. It quenches the Spirit. It quenches the Spirit. So not only are there divisions that take place spiritually in the lives of individuals and begin privately, but then they progress. And this is a huge thing. Sin progresses. In its very DNA, if you will, sin has everything inside of it to grow and to bring death. That's what's built into sin. That it, it just doesn't stay small. It's meant to consume everything. And so what starts out as maybe a small issue of the heart that should be settled just as Jesus instructed us to do in Matthew chapter 18, which he says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. And the operative phrase being there that you gain your brother or your sister or your friend or your family member instead of losing them. But through gossiping and backbiting, things move to the public as more people get involved. Yesterday at the men's conference at Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, was amazing. I mean, I, there was probably, I'd say, like 800 men or so that had, had, or maybe even more, I don't know, that sanctuary is massive. And one of the things that we were talking about in my session was we talked about gossiping a little bit, where these three men decided to get together and, and to uh, confess their sins to one another so that they might pray for each other and be healed. And, you know, the first guy gets up there and he's, or in the group and, and, and he starts to speak and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I just struggle with alcohol. And it's just been one of those things, like, I don't do it publicly, it's private, you know, but every night before bed, I just need to have my drink in order for me to, to be able to sleep, and so I have a couple of drinks every night before bed, and I have a real struggle with this, you know, it's a real problem. And, and then the next guy gets up, and, and he says, you know, well, I really struggle with lust, and it's been something I've been battling for some time, and, and you know, these women just come across my path, and, and I lust after them, and, and you know, and the, he starts talking about these other women and all, and then the third guy gets up, and he says, you know what, I really, my struggle, just wanted to share with you guys, my struggle is gossiping, and I just can't wait to get out of here, and that... And, and we'll see that, you know, some people even in prayer times and, 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 and they'll start gossiping about other people in their time of spiritual prayer. Lord, we just pray for this guy as he's been such a jerk and he's struggling with all these different sins and it, they list them all out and the people in the prayer group are like, I had no idea he struggled with those things, you know. And, and it's not a good thing when something that was meant to be private has now gone public. It's very fascinating I find how Peter and Paul put these two verses down first Peter and first Peter chapter 5 verse 8 he said be sober and be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour seeking whom he may devour like a roaring lion Paul wrote in Galatians 5 15 but if you bite and he wrote to the church he said but if you bite and devour one another beware lest you be consumed by one another so we see how this can take place, how the enemy is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then Paul writes to the church in Galatians, says, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. 
If our enemy recognizes that the camp is well fortified, if our church is well fortified, the next best thing that he can do is to try to attack it from the inside. From the inside out. And you look at this church and you see what the Lord's been doing in this church. You see what happens in, in, in churches across the country where, where the Lord uses a particular group of people, the body of Christ in a particular area, in a powerful way. They become a threat to the enemy. And then all of a sudden the enemy wants to see that work stopped and wants to see the individuals that comprise the body of Christ destroyed. Paul says in verse 19 now, 1 Corinthians 11, For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. You see this, factions. You're choosing sides now. And you only know that there are sides now because you've been brought into something that's public now. Because now you've been made aware of, now, now, now there's this, not just the, a division, there's a faction. And we got this group over here, and they have this side of the story, and that group over there, and they have that side of the story. And this is the body of Christ, and we come together publicly to worship the Lord, but we're divided. And the word that is used here, factions, it's used to describe dissensions that arrive from opinions that get etched into stone. They become factions, a a group of people that follow their own tenets or roll in their own clique or party. You know, they don't talk to other people or mingle with others that are not in their circle of thought about that matter. I think it must just break the Lord's heart and make the devil overjoyed. You saw this in Judaism, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they hated each other. Brothers, following the same God. You can see this happening in modern day churches as well and I think that it does break the Lord's heart but we know that the enemy rejoices over that because that's exactly what he has come to do when the Lord's people become divided when they no longer can just be cool with people you know and that's just street slang for being loving to people when we're not considering other people's feelings in the things that we say and that we do And you know what? And that goes both ways. Those that are initiating it and the ones that are reacting to it. There's two sides to every story. The people that have done the thing, the people that have responded to it. For there must also be factions among you, verse 19, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. It's like this. Hey, I know the true story behind what really happened there. Oh, really? Tell tell more. You know, I approve for this candidate leading this faction in the church. This is the one that I'm standing behind. You know, and then you have people being included and people being excluded and people taking sides. And man, I thought we were all on the same side. Jesus' side. What in the world? And the byproduct of this taking place in the church is in verse 20. We see, therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Interesting. When I'm divided and when there are factions, the worship service is not what it's supposed to be. And I find it so interesting how the Lord would have us speak on this subject today on our First Communion Sunday for the month of June. When there are factions and divisions in the church, the worship service is not what it's supposed to be. I'm there trying to have fellowship or literally communion with the Lord. 
but my heart is wrong towards my brother or sister in Christ. On this subject, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So where was the man when he realized that there was a problem that he had with somebody else? The altar. That was the place of worship. We come to the place of worship, we need to be instructed by Jesus and say, you know what, if I've come to worship the Lord and present my gift, whether that's my tithe and offering, whether that's my songs of worship, whether that's my time of opening and reading and studying God's word, and I there remember or I realize that I have actually a problem with somebody else that's there in the church, I need to be reconciled to them and then continue my time of worship. In verse 21, he says, for in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. And then verse 22, he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So the way that these schisms or Divisions or factions played themselves out were in deep inconsideration for other people's well-being. People were coming to church not realizing that their hearts were wrong towards each other and in so being were wrong towards the Lord and it changed everything about the worship service dynamic. See, the early church had these feasts called the agape feasts or these love feasts where the body of Christ would get together, the members of the church would get together for a meal and a time of social and a, and a time of socializing but then there were people that were left out some were being selfish and taking so much for themselves that there wasn't enough for others and some were even coming to church and getting inebriated those were hungry weren't getting anything these were the actions that would be associated with non-christians in the pagan rituals and the deities that they would worship and part of these, these drunken feasts and these things that were so self-focused and fil- you know, focused on pleasure. These were, the things, these were the things associated with the past life, not the way that a Christian should be living, not somebody that's filled with the Spirit. They should not be so inconsiderate of other people. Their actions were those of non-Christians. Their selfishness was a broken pillar of their faith that needed to be rebuilt because love suffers long and is kind. I love what my friend David Guzik said in capturing Paul's thought on this. He says, if you want to eat or drink selfishly, do it at home. The Apostle Paul is not happy how the Christians in Corinth are behaving and how they're treating one another as he says three times in this section, I do not praise you. I can tell you right now, man, I'm glad we're not the church of Corinth. Man, how are Christians to behave then in light of all this? Are we to be inconsiderate? No. We're rather to live in remembrance, which leads us to our second and final point today. We go from point number one, which is inconsiderate, to point number two, which is in remembrance. In remembrance. See, it's very easy to lose our way and to get off track. The good thing, though, is... The word of God is always constant. And at any time, 
At any time, you can find your landmark again and get back on the right track. You can know exactly where you are. At any moment, if you've drifted, if you've gone off, it's gone awry, whatever it might be, you can look to the Bible. You can look to God's Word, your landmark that never changes and know exactly where you are in relation to what God's Word says. So now Paul's going to share with the church what Jesus taught by way of reminder. In verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Now all the time Jesus would teach something spiritually and people would mistake, make a mistake and miss the spiritual elements of what he was saying. You know, he said in one part of the scripture, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the people thought, hey, it took, you know, how long it took to build this temple, but he was speaking of his body. You know, the woman at the well, and Jesus said, I'll give you water to drink and you'll never thirst again. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket. I missed what he was saying. He said, unless you eat my, my body and drink my blood, you'll have nothing to do with me. And the people thought, he's a cannibal. What was he saying? Jesus' body is like the bread being broken and his blood represents, or the cup represents his blood that was spilled for us. That's what communion's all about. We're remembering How awful we are without Christ. How greatly we have sinned. How we are deserving of death, but God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So in remembrance of what Jesus did, how should that change the way we treat people around us? Gathering together for worship. Gathering together for communion like we are today. Gathering around to study God's word is a holy endeavor. It should be treated as such. In verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So every time we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross through this act of communion, we're doing so in remembrance of what he did. We're proclaiming his death to the world until he comes for us. We're proclaiming what Jesus did. It was a known fact. It is a literal fact that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and we're proclaiming what that means to the world. We're proclaiming the very thing that defeated Satan. We're proclaiming the very thing that made passage to heaven possible. We're proclaiming the very thing that saved us from our sins. We're proclaiming the very thing that brought us into a right relationship with God. We're proclaiming the very thing that Satan, via the world, once absolutely silenced. We're proclaiming the death of Jesus, his blood that was spilled, his body that was broken for the sins of the world. And that's what we're going to be doing again today, this Sunday in June. Communion Sunday. Proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ, what that means, what that's done for us. And he says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood 
of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. To examine yourself. A time of reflection. A time of asking yourself, am I where I should be spiritually? Am I right with my brothers or sisters in Christ? Am I part of the division by my actions or am I causing a schism by my reaction? This is a very serious thing for the follower of Jesus and I like to distinguish between the religious practitioner. And what that means is really this, that this person does not have a personal relationship with Jesus but observes and participates in communion. Partaking of communion in an unworthy manner is a very serious and terrible thing to do. You're basically saying, okay, well, this bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken for me. And and, and this cup represents Jesus' blood that was spilled as they lashed his back, as they put that crown of thorns on his head, and as they nailed him to that cross, and as they speared his side. That's what this cup represents. And so I'll take the bread knowing that it represents his body that was broken for us. I'll drink the cup which represents his blood that was spilled for for us. But then I reject it personally. I don't receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I don't put my faith in him. But even as well for the follower of Jesus, to take communion in an unworthy manner, you're not respecting and loving the body of Christ as you should and thus not in a right place to observe communion. Yeah, okay, that's grape juice and little matzo bread or whatever. Like, we're going to have that today as part of communion. Is it just something that we do? Is it just something religious that we do or does it mean something? It's a very serious thing. I should not approach this, this communion with the Lord knowing that I am divided with other people. If there's something that I have done, I need to confess that to the Lord and ask Him to forgive me of my sins. I need to make amends with those that I need to make amends with. This is a serious thing. And we see that there was a corrective discipline that evidently the Lord brought upon those that were abusing this act of worship and gathering together to remember what Jesus did for them on the cross. It says in verse 30, For this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep or even have died. For if we would judge ourselves, verse 31, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, today, maybe you've had people that you've had a problem with. Maybe there's things that are going on in your life where you say, well, you know what, I maybe have not handled this the way that I should have handled this. Or maybe I was the cause of this and I shouldn't have done this. This was wrong. It's caused problems. It's rippling. Whatever it may be. Judge yourself. That time of reflection is a great time for you to be like, all right, Lord, I'm honest before you, and as quickly as I want to point the finger at other people, I have the same amount of fingers pointing back at me. Lord, for what I did and how I played a part in this, Lord, would you forgive me? And the Lord, he'll have his hand of conviction upon you, and he'll use certain things to get your attention. 
It's because he loves you and he cares about you. And if you feel like you've been under a spiritual attack where, you know, maybe you're a part of something that's causing division or maybe you feel like you're just bumping heads with people or whatever, I would first of all like to encourage you to let you know that if Satan is attacking you in that area, it means that you're making a difference. That you're doing something that's right and that you're part of something that's bigger that's doing something that's right on. Because Spurgeon said, the devil never kicks a dead horse. And so if you're active and you're doing something that's right, know that there's going to be opposition. Recognize the attacks of the devil and nip them in the bud. And as much as is within your power, live at peace with all men. This is a very important thing. And if the Lord chastens you, it's because he loves you. As it says in Hebrews 12, verse 6, uh, it says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, I discipline my children because I love them, not because I hate them. When you're a child, you think that your parents hate you when they discipline you. You know, I remember my dad telling me, son, this hurts me way more than it hurts you. And I remember thinking, uh, yeah, right, I don't believe that for one second. Until, you know, you grow up and have kids of your own. And then you discipline your children and you go and cry afterwards and be like, I don't want to have to do this. You know, and you see them, you know, upset because they got on restriction or they're busted or whatever it might be. The same thing happens because the Lord loves us and that he'll chasten us to keep us where we should be privately and personally. And then how our personal lives affect the body of Christ at large. Because even as you have a dislocated ankle because you wanted to be a cool rollerblader, and don't worry, I wasn't wearing Delphin shorts and headphones like guys do on the boardwalk in Newport. Um, uh, you, you, you get disjointed, it affects everything. Your whole body hurts. And the same thing happens with, you know, uh, the body of Christ. When things are disjointed, they don't work properly, and you feel the pain as it ripples throughout the body. So therefore, he says in verse 33 as we finish up today, therefore, my brethren... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. There are certain things that need to be taken care of privately and in your own home, and they need to stay there. And there are certain things that, unfortunately, they do get escalated, and people bring in neutral parties, as the Bible instructs, and then the church has to get involved, which is the last step, which hopefully, you know, we never have anything that happens like that. But really, it can all be foregone if we prefer others better than ourselves. If we're steadfast in holding up one another instead of tearing down one another. Because when we come to church, we don't want there to be animosity or divisions or schisms or factions or I know the truth about this and you don't know the whole thing and I'm following this person. And th- I mean, this is the thing that Satan rejoices over. He loves that stuff and it breaks the Lord's heart. We're the body of Christ. And the Lord does bring people into our lives that cause us to cause a little friction at times. A lot of friction at times. But what's happening there? As iron sharpening iron, as you're in relationships with other people in the body of Christ, they're going to be responsible for their actions before the Lord, and they'll give an account for those actions. But how you respond, you're responsible for. So don't be the one that's causing the problem, and don't be responding to the problem in a way that that dishonors the Lord. 
Whatever you can do, honor God in your actions and you'll see the body of Christ flourish and you'll see your time of fellowship with the Lord flourish and you'll see the body of Christ being exactly what it's supposed to be. And so again, speaking to the church regarding deeming others better than themselves, preferring one another, being considerate of one another, and really, just quite frankly, loving one another. And I'd like to close with this verse in Luke 6.31. He says, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Jesus said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we'll not see, we will not ever go wrong with that, and we'll not see any of the problems that were talked about here in 1 Corinthians. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we have, Lord, to be challenged, to be convicted, to be instructed. Lord, we pray that today, Father, you would bless your church and your people. Lord, I ask that as we have this time of observing communion, Lord, I pray, God, that you would prepare our hearts for that as we judge ourselves and as we take just a time of reflection, do a little inventory. If we have unconfessed sin, Lord, if we've been harboring bitterness towards someone, or Lord, if there's something in our life that you'll just show us right now that this is not in its proper priority column. Lord, I ask, God, that we would confess those things to you. Lord, that we would be forgiven of those sins. And Lord, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, especially now as we observe communion. Lord, thank you, God, for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the great love that you have shown us that whoever would believe in Jesus would not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, today, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to be those men and women that you've created us to be, Lord. Help us, Lord, to forego all the problems, Lord, that we've seen as an example, Lord, in the book of 1 Corinthians. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless your people and bless this church and bless the relationships and bless the families and, Lord, bless the work that you're doing through every person that is here today. And, Lord, we praise you We thank you for your unconditional love, for your forgiveness, for your grace that covers a multitude of sins. Thank you, Lord, for the great love with which you've loved us. And Lord, we praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.